Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, as we said on Ascension Sunday, uh, we read the account of Paul read us the account of the Ascension from Acts chapter one, where we get maybe some of the most detail about what happened and when it happened. But we're going to be focusing in the sermon this morning on Luke's other account because Luke wrote Acts, but Luke's other account at the end of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24. Uh, So if you would please stand as we read just a few verses from Luke as we get started. This is God's Word. This is Luke 24, verses 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. So mountains are really important in the Bible. Can you think of any important mountains in the Bible? This is participatory. Yes, Emery. Mount Sinai, excellent example, at the top of most of our lists, probably, of important mountains. Yeah, Liam. The Mount of Transfiguration. It's a big fancy word. Yeah, that's where Jesus revealed himself in his glory to Peter, James, and John at the top of a mountain before he was killed. Uh, What other mountains can you think of, important mountains? This could go on for a while. I want to see how obscure we get. (laughs) Yeah, Zeal. The Mount of Olives, yeah, excellent. That one is what we'll be talking about today. It's an important mountain. Yeah, Judah. Mount Zion, yeah, who knows what Mount Zion is? Do you know, Liam? Yeah, so it's often in Scripture, we we see it used as an example of of being a picture of heaven. Um, It is in Jerusalem where the temple was. And when and Mount Zion is often put in place of the worship of the people of God, of the main place where they gather together to worship him at the temple. Um, what else? Can you think of any other important mountains in the Bible? Yeah, Paul. Mount Ararat. So, so Noah, his ark lands on the mountains of Ararat. Um, there's a Mount Ararat today, but actually what Genesis says is it landed in the mountains of Ararat. But is that is important as, as he comes back and is rescued down to the mountains of Ararat from the flood. Anything else? Oh, you got one, Isaac? Mount Carmel. What's Mount Carmel? Yeah, Elijah goes to battle with the false prophets of Baal, right? And that's where God sends down his fire from heaven onto the altar, which has been soaked in water like that. That's right. Uh, Mount Carmel is where God d- displays his glory through, through the prophet Elijah to his people in a dry and dark time of the people of Israel. So you could go on. Uh, I mean, you can go on. I love using BibleGateway.com for searches. It has an excellent search engine, and you search for words. You search for mountain, mountain, and a million things will come up, and you'll go, oh, that's what that is. Mount Carmel, Mount Zion, Mount Gilboa, Mount Seir, Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Nebo, Mount Hor. All these probably, oh, I've heard that before, right, as you read scripture. But they do have significance. 
So most cultures and religions have mountains which are considered holy places. For as long as man has existed, mountains have held a religious uh, significance in their lives. So we can see this still today as shrines and temples, even of idols, are often placed on high hills or on the tops or sides of mountains. Have you seen that? Um, seen little shrines or temples placed sort of up on hills, especially if you've been to foreign countries, if you've been to China or anything like that, you'll see little shrines and things placed along the mountainside. So why do you think this is? Why do you think people consider mountains to be so important? I'm actually looking for an answer here. To get closer to God, yeah. So there's something appropriate about believing that mountains are holy places. Higher places on earth are closer to the heavens, aren't they? So, And we know in our hearts as we look into the heavens that there is a God who made the heavens and the earth. And so it makes sense that we would put significance on mountains because they make us feel high up and closer to heaven. And in his word, God tells us that his throne is in heaven. And because of this, it makes perfect sense that we would feel that we are approaching God as we physically ascend a mountain and as we go toward that heavenly throne. Now, that desire to ascend towards God can be fulfilled wickedly and proudly. We see this at the Tower of Babel, right? Men tried to build with their own hands a high place by which they could reach into heaven. They sought to build a mountain of their own in order to compete with the creator of mountains. And God was not pleased with that, we see. But the men at Babel understood rightly that God was in heaven. And even though they sought to fulfill their desire to ascend into heaven in a wicked way, it's still true that God has been pleased at many times and in many ways to reveal himself to his people through the use of mountains. So he named a bunch of mountains. Can you think of special ways that God revealed himself in Scripture using mountains. We mentioned the Mount of Transfiguration. So you can use some of the mountains we listed off. Tell me what happened at those mountains. What important things? Yeah, Jubilee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, God reveals himself to Moses face to face, and then God delivers his law to his people through his prophet Moses on Mount Sinai. What else? What other special ways does God use mountains in Scripture? Or what are some special things that happen? Yeah, Liam. Yeah, very good. Yeah, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus uses mountains a couple of times, the Mount of Transfiguration, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 begins saying that Jesus went up onto a mountain, and delivered the Sermon on the Mount, which is a lot like Moses delivering the law of God to his people from a mountain, from on high. Um, And then the the Olivet Discourse is something, I'll mention that in a minute, Um, but Jesus teaches his disciples in a special way near the end of his ministry on the Mount of Olives. We see that God set his temple on Mount Zion. The Psalms, even if as we saw this morning, a little bit in the Psalms, uh, use ascending the hill of the Lord as a theme of approaching God. So Psalm 15, that's what it's talking about. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord or who may dwell in his tent? 
And Psalm 24 puts it this way. It says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Only the righteous. So a pattern emerges as we remember these mountains in Scripture. As we look at these themes and patterns in Scripture, we see that there have been many hills and mountains which have represented for God's people the approach to God, which we must take to have fellowship with Him. God's people have drawn near to Him as they ascend His appointed high places. But is that because there's something magical or mystical about the mountains themselves? Is God more present at the top of Mount Everest than He is in the Ohio Valley? What do you think? Mountains are special, right? Well, no, ultimately the physical mountains which God chooses to use with his people are markers and guideposts which should direct our attention into heaven, past the mountains, and actually even past heaven itself to where God's throne is, to where God is, right? Not just to the heavens in general, but spiritually to the throne of the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. So the ascending of mountains in Scripture is a picture for us of ascending into God's presence and approaching Him. This is what Isaiah 55 says, teaching us about God's presence in heaven. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Even if we can go into the heavens, we don't quite get to God. And we've been into the heavens now with spaceships, right? But we must come into the presence of the Lord where He is. And approaching the throne of God in heaven is ultimately what the ascension of Jesus Christ is all about. So Luke tells us that Jesus led his disciples out to a mountain. And not just any old mountain, but one that carried great significance for God's people, the Mount of Olives. It's called Olivet. You'll see that sometimes it's it's the Mount called Olivet in Scripture. Same thing, Mount of Olives, Mount called Olivet. Acts calls calls it Olivet. We usually associate the Mount of Olives with the New Testament, but its first mention is actually, I'm not, I'm not going to ask. Well, I don't know. Anybody happen to know? I didn't know. Where If it's mentioned in the Old Testament anywhere, it is. Yeah, do you know? Yeah? No, no. Yeah, not the threshing floor. So the threshing floor is when David takes a census and the angel of the Lord is coming to strike the people with a plague. So it's not that instance. There's another instance where David ends up on the Mount of Olives. No, it's another time of affliction. He's running away from his son Absalom in Jerusalem, who has usurped his throne. And David is running away, and he goes up the Mount of Olives. And it tells us in 2 Samuel there that this is a place where God was worshipped. That's what it says about the Mount of Olives. And this was a thousand years before Jesus came into the world. So this, is, this mountain had held a significance for the people of God for a very long time. And here in the, gospel and in the Gospels and in Acts, we have Jesus leading his disciples to this mountain, the Mount of Olives, for his ascension into heaven. It's here at Olivet that God chose to mark the very end of Jesus' bodily presence on the earth. So what was it that marked the beginning of Christ's life on earth? What was the beginning of Christ's presence on the earth? Yeah. 
uh, it so showed that Jesus was coming. I wouldn't say the star was his bodily presence itself. That was a sign. Where was the first place Jesus existed? In the womb of Mary, right? Conceived by the Holy Spirit. The, the conception of the Holy Spirit is the beginning of Christ's presence on earth, in the flesh, among us. And as the Holy Spirit conception stands as one bookend on Christ's life on this earth, so his ascension stands as the other bookend, the completion of his dwelling physically among his people. You should have those two in your head as sort of the, the bookends, the markers, the covers of Jesus' presence on the earth was his Holy Spirit conception and then his ascension. And as we read, Luke finishes his gospel account with a brief, brief mention of the ascension. But it's important that we remember the, the ascension is not really the end of Christ's work on earth. It marks the end of one era of Christ's work, but as much as that, it marks the beginning of another era of his work on the earth. So we see this as, uh, I'm going to read again what Pastor Belcher read from the beginning of Acts 1. And remember that the book of Acts is a sequel that Luke the evangelist wrote to the book of Luke. At the beginning, as we read, he says, The first account I composed, O Theophilus, which what he's talking about is the Gospel of Luke. He says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles, keep that in your head, the apostles, okay, whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, keep that in your head, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you hear from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, okay, keep that one, I'm giving you little bookmarks, okay. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And then we get to the Ascension account, which I'll just read again for us here. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So, the ascension is simultaneously the end of Christ's earthly redemptive work and the beginning of his new work through his apostles and through his church on the earth. Now, you often hear the main historical events of the gospel summed up um, and listed as the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is true, but I think it's important, that, and I would contend that the ascension shares an equal significance with these other events. That's why we say it in the Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven. It's essentially important what happened at the Ascension. So I want to make sure we walk through the details of what really happened at the Ascension. Just a little exhortation here. I never want us to lose sight of the spiritual significance of the historical facts of Jesus' life and work, and of Scripture in general. There's a lot of history in Scripture, and we can think 
no, that's not important. It's the teaching stuff that's really important. But we have at the heart of the gospel are true objective events which really happened, which we can objectively proclaim to others, which people can objectively believe in. And believing the gospel is not just believing warm, fuzzy feelings about God. Believing the gospel begins with believing that Christ truly lived, truly died, truly rose from the dead, and truly ascended into heaven, and that he is there right now as we speak. These are objective realities that God has revealed to us, that we can know are true. And if we believe these truths in our hearts, great joy will flow from that faith. We don't put our trust in how we feel, but in what God has done. And we can look in Scripture and see and know for sure what God has done. So it's important that we know and love what God has done in its details, as revealed to us in Scripture. I think it's far too easy for us to skip over historical details of exactly what happens in Scripture. We don't put enough effort into remembering where things happen, who was there, or what exactly was said. We can remember such details about our favorite movies and books, right? We can quote lines word for word, right, from our favorite movies. We know exactly who is in what part and what scene. We know where things happen and where things don't happen. If we can do that, we absolutely must put the time and energy into knowing what the Holy Spirit records for us in his word. So we're going to walk through a little bit of a who, what, where, when, why, how of the ascension, okay? So you tell me, who was there? Yes, Liam. Yep, the apostles and Jesus. How many apostles? Eleven. Good. Yeah. Only eleven. Why were there not twelve? Yes. Yes, and had been fallen headlong and burst open in the middle, and his intestines gushed out. I was just showing. I'll show it to you later. I was showing uh, Mr. Beddinghouse and, uh, and Mr. John Thistleton pictures of Moses' intestines uh, gushed out on the operating table. If you want to see what that looks like, I'll show you later. I don't, uh, I don't just, I asked them before I showed them. I don't just uh, say, hey, look at this. I'm not one of those guys. But actually, Judas's was much worse. This was a, Moses's was a very controlled, clean, uh, intentional thing. Judas's was a judgment from God and was gross, right? So Judas wasn't there. There were 11 apostles. So it's possible that others of his disciples were there too. So this happened near Bethany. We see that Luke says that he led them out to Bethany. Um, and some of Jesus' dearest friends lived in Bethany. Do you know who lived in Bethany? Yeah. Lazarus lived in Bethany, along with Mary and Martha, sisters. Um, so it's possible that other people were there to see this happen, but we're specifically taught by the Holy Spirit that it was, and by name, that it was the apostles who were there. The eleven, as Mark and Luke say. And these are the men whom Christ commissioned and especially endowed with the Holy Spirit to carry the gospel into the world accompanied by signs and wonders. God knew these men by name and it was important that we would know who these men are so we would know who to listen to and who truly passed down the account of Christ's work. So the apostles were there. Now what happened? So we, Jesus ascended into heaven, right? 
But do you remember, do you notice what Luke says Jesus was doing, what he did right before and while he ascended into heaven? Do you remember from the Luke account what he did and what he was doing while he ascended into heaven? Yes, Whitaker. We read this last night at the dinner table, and so I've got some insiders over there. He was blessing his disciples. It says, he lifted up his hands and blessed them, and while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So he was blessing them, and what does that mean? My kids asked me, what does it mean that he blessed them? And I actually struggled a little bit to come up with, like, what does it mean to bless somebody? We can mean different things by that, right? Sometimes we think of blessing somebody as giving them a gift, right? We can give somebody a gift. Or if something good happens to us, we might say, oh, what a blessing, which we might be implying by that, God blessing us and giving us a gift, right? But what does it mean that Jesus was there blessing them? Was he handing out gifts, you know? I don't think so. He was lifting up his hands. Well, another way we use blessing is as a favorable pronouncement over someone. So Jacob, we see this in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Jacob blesses all of his sons at the end of Genesis. You remember this when he walks through Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and says all of the things about their lives, what their lives will be characterized by after he dies. And God was pleased to grant those blessings, those pronouncements, those things that uh, Jacob said about his sons. But the blessings of mere man can often be empty. They can just be words. We can say nice things to people and wish them well, but without God, that blessing doesn't carry any power. Jacob's blessings carried power to his children because God was behind those blessings. Sometimes we can say nice things to people and it doesn't mean anything or carry any weight or significance, right? If God's not in it. Now we know this is not the case with Jesus. His blessings are never just empty words that he says with no power or significance. His blessings are powerful and fully effective. When he speaks comforting, strengthening, encouraging words to his chosen ones, as he did here, he truly gives the gracious favor favor of his Father in heaven. When Jesus blesses, it is a gift from the Father himself. For Jesus to bless them, was for him to assure them of their success and to give them the strength they needed for what he was calling them to do. And this is sweet that Jesus finishes his time on earth by blessing his disciples and communicating to them God's favor and his grace. It's actually what he is doing while he is being taken up into heaven. It says while he was blessing them, it's almost like he wasn't done yet, right? which I think is the point, is that he wasn't done blessing them. He was taken into heaven even as he was blessing them. He could have finished his time on earth, how? With a rebuke, right? And we see, I I don't think the Acts emphasized this, but Luke does, at the end of Luke, point out that there were rebukes to be had when Jesus showed up in his resurrected body. Because why? Because he had revealed himself, to Mary and to others at the tomb, and they had come and told the disciples, and they went, nah, I don't think you saw Jesus. You're crazy. He could have finished with rebuke, and he did rebuke them at the end, but that's not how he finished his time on earth. He was not rebuking them being taken up into heaven, right? 
And that's a very sweet and kind blessing from the Lord that he finishes with blessing. And that's the last thing we have of him as he ascends into heaven. That's the very last thing he leaves them with. Blessing, effective pronouncements of God's favor, comfort, and assurance from God himself, the Father. And this shows us that Jesus Christ is kind. And he is patient. Even with those disciples who had just not believed in him within the past few weeks. He was kind and patient with them and blessed them. And through Christ, God the Father is kind to his people. God the Father loves the disciples of his son, Jesus. He can't not love those who love his son, Jesus. And those whom Christ blesses are truly children of God. It's impossible for Christ's blessing on his people not to result in those people being truly children of God. Because Christ's blessings are powerful and effective. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. So where did this happen? We've said, where did this happen? Did we forget already? You remember, Max, where this is happening? On the Mount of... Correct. Yes. Good job. So, does anybody know where the Mount of Olives is? Yeah, Liam, do you know? Near Bethany. Yes, good deduction. Way to be paying attention. Yeah. Uh, So, where in relation to Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives? Do you know? Which side it's on? So, it's near Jerusalem, very near about a Sabbath day's walk, which is not a very long way. That means as long as you were allowed to walk on a Sabbath day. Um, so pick a side. What do you think? East. Good. Well done. <laughs> yeah, it's on the east side of Jerusalem. Um, and something that helps me, even as I study scripture, is to look up, like I was on Google Maps looking, and you can look up, you can type in Bethany, and it will like show you where Bethany is, which is on the southeast slope of the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. So it says he led them to Bethany. Bethany was near there. Um, What else happened at the Mount of Olives or in Bethany? We've named a couple of them. Do you remember? Remind me, what, what has happened before this at the Mount of Olives? We've got two we've mentioned already. I want you to repeat them if you remember them. Yes, Jubilee. The Olivet Discourse. So Jesus has taught there to his disciples. And this is actually, this is an important one. The Olivet Discourse happens near the end of Jesus' ministry. So he does a lot of his ministry in the first part of his ministry out in the cities, the various cities and towns of um, Israel. But then he works his way back to Jerusalem to where he's going to die. And during the end of his ministry, he spends his days ministering and preaching the gospel in the city of Jerusalem. But it says in the evenings, he would retire and go outside the city to the Mount of Olives. And there he would spend time privately with his disciples, which is where he gave the Olivet Discourse. was not up on a mountain preaching to thousands of people like some of his sermons, but the Olivet Discourse about the terrible things which were going to happen and be a sign of things to come, he says to his disciples privately, on the Mount of Olives, shortly before his death. There's one more other really, really important thing that we've celebrated here recently that happens, that involves the Mount of Olives. 
an important event that we celebrated here recently. He's not crucified or resurrected on the Mount of Olives. There's something that happens before that. He rides. Yes, Linda? No? Well, yeah, so yeah, Gethsemane is kind of out in that direction, east of Jerusalem. Before Gethsemane, about a week before Gethsemane, Jesus rides into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey, having come from the Mount of Olives. Okay, This is where he, he rides in as a conquering king into the city of Jerusalem, where he should be crowned as king, but is instead killed. But it's significant that Jesus rides down from a mountain into Jerusalem, right? Reflecting the fact that he came down from heaven as king to his people. And he came to Jerusalem to die, and then what does he do after he dies and is raised from the dead? He goes back up the Mount of Olives to ascend into heaven and return to where he came from as the victorious king. So then we also mentioned that Bethany is where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Okay, so when did the ascension happen? We've read it twice now. When did it happen? Anybody remember? Forty days after... Yeah, 40 days after he was raised from the dead. So many times in Scripture, 40 days or 40 years is a duration of significance. Can you think of other examples of this? Yes, Liam. So, yeah, close. Yes, Zeal. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Very good. Yeah, Adelaide. Yes, excellent. Fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, right? And then was tempted by Satan after being very hungry. Uh, yes, Neil, do you have another one? Yes, that's right. I think that's what you're trying to think of, Liam. Is that the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years as God's discipline and punishment for their lack of faith to enter the promised land when they could have. Um, 40 days and nights of rain... 40 days of Noah waiting to open the window of the ark, interestingly. Moses on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. The spies spy out Canaan for 40 days. They're gone for 40 days, and then they come back. Uh, 40 years in the desert for the people of Israel. 40 years of either rest or oppression in Judges. There's often a 40-year period of oppression from an enemy or a 40-year period of rest. Uh, 40 days that Goliath taunts the armies of Israel. Elijah spends 40 days and nights at Mount Horeb. Jonah proclaims a judgment on Nineveh, yet 40 days and the city will be destroyed over and over and over again. It's really amazing. Now, I don't know exactly why God is pleased to do this, but it's enough to know that God is pleased or why he picked the number 40, right? But it's enough to know that God is pleased to work in patterns, and those patterns draw our attention to certain things about what God wants us to learn and how he works. So themes which arise from these 40 days are often a theme of waiting on the Lord, of looking to him to work mightily in some way, or of preparing for a mighty work which God is about to do. So just think of the example of Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. You remember when that happened? It happened at the beginning of his ministry, before he went and began his public preaching ministry. He fasted, and that was part of his essential preparation for the important work that God the Father had sent him to do. 
In the case of the ascension, it's fitting that Jesus appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. He took that time to encourage and prepare them for the great work he was planning to do through them. And he capped that 40 days with his amazing ascent into heaven, and also with a promise that they would be clothed with power from on high. So another when question here. When did Jesus say that God's promise of the Holy Spirit would be fulfilled? That the apostles would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. He put a time on it. Do you know, Zeal? That's okay. Uh, it's in, our, uh, in the Acts passage, in Acts 1. It says that Jesus said not many days from now. Okay, so he didn't specify the number of days that time. But we found out very soon how many days later it would happen. Do you know about how many days later they were clothed with power from on high? Just about 10. That's when Pentecost happened. It was 50 days after the resurrection. We'll be talking a little bit about Pentecost. And amazingly, Acts 2 will be our scripture reading next week, which is God sending his spirit and fulfilling this promise. God fulfilled this promise 10 days later to actually send down his Holy Spirit to give special power to the apostles to do their work. Now, examining all of these things, these details, these who was there, these what happened, these when, these whys, helps us understand why the ascension is important. So as we said, the ascension marks the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. It truly marks the completion of what he came to do. He finished his work on the cross, and then the Father fulfilled his promises by taking his Son back into heaven. This demonstrates the fulfillment of God the Father's promise to highly exalt his Son, who humbled himself by bearing the sins of his people in his body on the cross. And it's important to remember that this was always the end goal of Jesus' incarnation. This is why he came in the flesh. He humbled himself so that God might highly exalt him and give him a name above every name. So remember this from Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, brought himself low. Whenever you think of the word humble, think of bringing yourself low. That's why we kneel. We're humbling ourselves before the Lord. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted. Exalt is the opposite of humble. Lifted up. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came to the earth to take on the form of a bondservant, but he was only to have that form for a limited time. The ascension marks the end of Jesus' time in the form of a bondservant. Which is to say, the ascension marks visibly and actually the establishment of Christ's glorious kingdom. It marks Christ's transition from the work of suffering servant to the work of advocate king and ultimately judge. We sang earlier, our Lord the judge shall come. It's talking about Christ. He is seated gloriously on his throne in heaven, having accomplished his atoning work in the predominant way we should conceive of Jesus, here and now, is as conquering kings seated in heaven on his throne, because that's where he is. 
so earlier we sang Psalm 15, and we mentioned the same idea from Psalm 24. Who may dwell on God's holy hill, and who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And the answer, those psalms answer for us, those who are righteous, those who have clean hands, those who have pure hearts. Uh Uh-oh. I get kind of depressed when I hear that list. (laughs) If you're like me, maybe you do too. This is a problem. Anyone here have clean hands and a pure heart? No, none of us are clean. None of us are righteous. But do you know who is clean? Do you know who is righteous? Do you know who has not lifted up, what's it say? Not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Do you know who does no wrong unto his friends? The Lord Jesus Christ. You knew that, didn't you? (laughs) And do you know what the Lord did? He ascended the hill of the Lord. The Psalms ask us the question, who will ascend the Lord? Who can go up? And there's an answer to that question. Jesus Christ will and did because he was worthy. And why did he do that? Why did he ascend the hill of the Lord? Is it just, you know, because, well, I'm worthy. I might as well go up the hill. No. It was to establish his kingdom, but more than that, it was to lead the way into heaven that we too might follow him there. He has ascended into the presence of his Father. With his blood, which atones for our uncleanness and our sin, he has made it safe for us to follow him into the presence of God the Father. Jesus Christ hears the prayers of unclean sinners. He then scrubs those prayers and makes them clean and then himself brings our requests to God the Father. He intercedes for his people in heaven. Jesus Christ is the one who actually carries our prayers to God the Father. And do you think the Father listens to the Son's prayers? You think so? Yes, absolutely. When you pray in Christ's name, your prayers are heard by God. Not because you are righteous and worthy, but because Christ is worthy and because he loves sinners like you. Earlier I said that those whom Christ blesses are truly children of God, and this is related to one of the things that Christ was ascending to heaven to do. John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples just before he died. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places who may abide in your tent, O Lord. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. I'm like Thomas, and I say, Lord, we don't know where you're going. (laughs) How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If they knew Jesus, they knew the way. Jesus ascended into heaven to prepare a place for his disciples in heaven at the Father's throne and in the Father's house. Those lowly men, uneducated sinners, men of the world, weak in faith, Jesus went to prepare a place for them in heaven in the presence of God. And this is true for you too, Christians. Brothers and sisters, he went to prepare a place for you. 
He has led the way for all who humbly follow him by believing in him and in what he has done. There's a place waiting for you in heaven that Christ himself has prepared. And he shows us this by wonder of wonders being visibly kindly in view of all of his apostles and kindly for us recorded in scripture. He, they saw him. We get to see him in scripture having gone into heaven. He could have done it in secret, but he did it so that we would all know. Now, one last thing here. I just want to walk through what the apostles did after Jesus' ascension. So I had number one, two, and three, and then I put number zero, which was they gazed intently into the sky, (laughs) which I skipped over, but this is important, um, that they were sort of dumbfounded staring into heaven, which strangely enough, the angels come, I think that's what I'd be doing, right? (laughs) Where'd he go? Angels kind of treat them like they're silly, like, why are you looking into the sky? Didn't he tell you to do something? And they're called away from just staring into heaven. What, what could they have done? You know, they could have hung out on the Mount of Olives forever. They could have built special shrines there, you know, because of that special thing that happened there. But no, there was work to do, and the angels came and called them to that work. So after gazing intently into the sky, they worshipped Jesus. And that is the only proper response. Much of our work as Christians is the work of worshiping the risen Jesus Christ. That's what we, the primary thing we gather to do on Sundays, is to worship and give glory to the King in heaven. That's the first thing the apostles did. They also, they obeyed Jesus. He told them to do something very specific. He told them to return and stay in Jerusalem, and that's exactly what they did. And they obeyed joyfully. So they could have tried to stay on the Mount of Olives forever and tried to preserve that mountaintop experience, literal mountaintop experience they had, but they instead obeyed Jesus. And to obey is better than sacrifice. And they did his will and went to Jerusalem and waited for his promise to be fulfilled. And they did it with joy. They had great joy. And I just want to ask the question, are our lives characterized by the joy of the Lord? As we come to these things in Scripture and remember what Jesus has done, Are we joyful in our homes? Are we joyful in our workplaces? Are we joyful at church? Are we cultivating joy in our hearts, joy in the Lord? Let us follow the example of the apostles having great joy. And then lastly, what Luke records for us is that they were continually in the temple praising God. That's kind of surprising to me. I feel like if they they had every excuse to kiss off the worship that had been happening, right? That the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees and uh, and the people all along with them had just murdered their Messiah King. And yet, the apostles, what they do is they immediately return back to the temple to worship God. And it's because it didn't matter what men had done to defile that temple. That was still God's temple. And they still went there to worship him. And it's tempting... To us, you know, people like to cast Jesus as a revolutionary, or sometimes he even gets labeled with words like rebel or renegade. But I think this is an example where we see that that's not at all what Jesus was doing. He wasn't trying to bring some new rebellious order of how things work. People will say, you know, Jesus hates religion. Well, but Jesus hates false religion, 
that's true. But there is true religion, and the apostles continued to devote themselves to God's worship in his temple until God took that temple away himself. And there's just a, just ourselves, we have to make sure that we don't kiss off, even though the church is weak and messy and corrupted by many people, we don't forsake the church and loving God's people in his dwelling place on the earth in his temple. But we follow the examples of the apostles and continuing to return and worship the name of God together, gathering in his presence. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and give you glory and honor for your great love in sending your own son, Jesus Christ, to humble himself, to do your will, to die on a cross, to be raised from the dead, and then to ascend into heaven. We praise you for setting him at your right hand as you always promised to do. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make a footstool, your enemies a footstool under your feet. Father, you have done exactly that, and we thank you and praise you, and we give glory to the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. As we sing praises to his name now, would you draw our hearts truly into heaven, prepare a place for us among your dwelling places through your Son. Call us by the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and cause us to be worthy of that name in how we live. Do give us clean hands, give us pure hearts, give us honest lips. Make us like Christ that we might carry out and advance his kingdom in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.